Uh, real quick, can we just, uh, Nigel and Brenda had their wedding blessed this week. Give them a round of applause. Very cool, very cool moment. I was privileged to be there. Um, <clears throat> happy St. Patrick's Day. You guys win, you win, the rest of us lose. You win, okay. Um, okay, we've got a couple logistical things. Um, so we're coming up, we're right at the end, and every year I'm like, how the heck did this happen? I'm like, we should have like three more months. Um, it always goes too fast, so we're right at, near the end. Um, and so coming up, we have, um, are we, gosh, what is it? Uh, it's not this Sunday, but the next Sunday, Palm Sunday. So the confession retreat is the next thing, right? Yes. Oh, and the last, the last scrutiny. The last scrutiny. The last scrutiny is this Sunday. Yeah. Um, these things are really easy, and I'm, I just apologize, like, I am so behind. We, we've been laughing because, so Mary Rogers, my assistant, had double knee surgery. Our director of faith formation had her baby, which I was like, how selfish are you? <laughs> <laughs> and then our newest hire, his, God bless him, I, I told you about Colin, his sister died of breast cancer last week. And I was just like, Lord, when it rains, it pours. And our director of maintenance is moving to Utah and Friday is his last day. And I was like, what are you doing to me? So that's my excuse. Um, so I'm sorry that we're like not, I am not more on like top of things of like giving you all these dates, but we'll get through it, right? We gave him the dates. Steph gave you the dates. <laughs> Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I'm gonna get something really quick. Okay. We're, that sounded worse than where we're at, everybody. We're good. Um, okay, <clears throat> so Sunday, is the last scrutiny. Don't worry about the snow apocalypse that just happened and missing the second scrutiny. We're fine. We're fine. So Sunday will be the last one. Then Palm, or the Saturday before Palm Sunday at 8 a.m. is the confession retreat, which everyone should know that that's happening. So if you're, if you haven't been baptized yet, you don't technically need to go receive confession before because obviously your baptism wipes you clean. But it's still, if you want to come and learn, you're totally welcome. But that's my husband calling me when I'm doing this. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, then Palm Sunday, 12 p.m. Mass. That's confirmation. And then the fall. And there's going to be a reception after for everyone. We'll have some treats and some drinks for you to celebrate. And then we'll have RCA that Wednesday. And then the Easter Vigil. And that's where the magic happens. And then there'll be a party after that. And then we still have class. <laughs> and then I will die. Yeah. But that's it, right? And we're going to do the rehearsals, like, kind of at the confession retreat and right before, right? I don't think we need to schedule a rehearsal. Let's, no. We'll talk, we'll talk about, about that. But yeah. we're all good. <laughs> it's going to be great. Okay. There, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the messiness. Yeah. All right. Um, here we go. So today is St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, St. Patrick, every year on March 17th, is turning in his grave because people use his holiness and his sanctity to justify sin, um, which is a horrible thing. Um, <clears throat> my middle name is Patrick, so what you would say to me is, Happy Feast Day. <laughs> Happy Feast Day, everyone. <laughs> 
So St. Patrick, really quick, quick story about him. Uh, so St. Patrick is a fourth century saint and very cool story. So St. Patrick is not actually Irish, he's Scottish, which drives me nuts because I'm supposedly Irish, still haven't done the like, you know, ancestry.com thing. And probably when that happens, I'll find out I'm like 1% Irish. But anyway, St. Patrick is not actually Irish, he's Scottish. And he was kidnapped as a young man. And he was taken to Ireland and he was enslaved. He escaped, he was ordained a priest and later a bishop and, a, and he went back to Ireland. And this is a great, a lot of saints have this story where they went back to go evangelize the people that enslaved them. Which is so beautiful, right? Like, I'm like the elephant, you know? Like, if you cross me, I will not forget. <laughs> I, that actually, I really mean that. That's one of my sins that I have in my life, is I, I tend to have a hard time letting go of things. And so I'm blown away by saints like St. Patrick, who was made a slave, and then went back to bring the gospel to those who had enslaved him. Wow. So, St. Patrick says this. Um, so this is a here, quick comment. Cut off from Rome and the whole continental church, meaning Europe as a continent, faced with growing hostility in the British church, his fellow bishops in the south apparently dead without successors, St. Patrick was left alone with his converts in the dark years, that saw the final fall of the Western Roman Empire. So right now, for a lot of us, it seems like dark days. Patrick feels like he is the last Christian on earth. The Roman Empire is collapsing. His other bishops that have been ordained to bring the gospel to Ireland are nowhere to be seen. He's very isolated. But I love this line. This historian who I like, he says, but they were not dark years for St. Patrick, nor for his people. Sunset, this, <laughs> darn my emotions. Sunset for the Christian Roman Empire in the West was sunrise for Christian Ireland. And so one of the writings from St. Patrick says this. He says, I must accept with equanimity whatever befalls me, be it good or evil. And always give thanks to God, who taught me to trust in him always without hesitation, and who must have heard my prayer, so that I, however ignorant I was, in the last day, days dared to undertake a holy and wonderful work, thus imitating somehow those who, as the Lord once foretold, would preach his gospel for a testimony to all nations before the end of the world. So we have seen it, and so it has been fulfilled. Indeed, we are witnesses that the gospel has been preached unto those parts beyond which there lives no one. So if you, if you come from an evangelical background, you might know the Great Commission which is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And what that is, is Jesus, right at the end of his life, right before he ascends to heaven, 
He says, Go therefore, preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. It's the last words Jesus ever speaks in Matthew's gospel. Um, and so, right, what he says there is go everywhere and preach the good news. That the story of humanity has a climax, it has a story of redemption, and that Jesus has truly become king of the world and baptize everyone. Um, Patrick, and there's, it's crazy when you read his writings, we don't have a ton of them, but we have some of his writings. So think of his time frame in the 4th and 5th century. They don't know that, that America exists. Patrick literally believed that he had been given the grace, sorry, to fulfill the words of Jesus' commands. In his understanding, he had gone to the last place on earth. Love that. And there's a place, I haven't been to Ireland, I need to go. I still apparently have family over there. Um, but it, when you go to Ireland, the very western part of Ireland, um, there are places named for St. Patrick. And today, right, in our culture, St. Patrick is the kiss me, I'm Irish, right? I don't have a shirt like that because I'm a priest. But, <clears throat> um, but that's, today it's just this, excuse for debauchery St. Patrick was a true saint he loved Jesus Christ he gave his life for him um, and I love that he brought the gospel to what he thought was the end of the world super cool okay that's St. Patrick if you have not picked a saint yet for your confirmation saint everybody's getting confirmed you need a saint that is one option he's an amazing saint he is not, like there's the legend of him driving all the snakes from Ireland. That's a legend. Um, the true greatness of Patrick is that he went to bring the gospel to those who had made him a slave. Amazing. Okay. You have a choose-your-own-adventure tonight. And in the markers, as usual. Um, so choose-your-own-adventure. So we have two options. We can take uh, door number one is we've been working through sacraments and the logical kind of thing to do is to finish those off. So tonight we can finish those off and we can talk about uh, marriage and priesthood. That's probably the way I would lean. Uh, not to favor the, the vote. You get a real vote. You can vote against me. Um, or the door number two is we're close to Holy Week. And I know that moral issues are a big issue for a lot of you. And so we can jump to morality. We will, if we do that, we will come back to priesthood and marriage as sacraments, but we'll do it after Easter. Okay, so how many people vote for marriage and priesthood? Ooh, I think I know where this is gonna go. Okay, and how many people vote for morality, jumping to morality? How many of you didn't vote? <laughs> okay. Um, the hot topic issue is morality. Yeah. So morality, right, will hit. Okay, it was a tie. We're going to do a marriage and priesthood. <laughs> Priest choice. Okay. Um, so here we go. So 
with the sacraments, what we've done, right? If you remember last time, three categories of sacraments. There are seven sacraments, but there are three categories they fall into. What are the three? No, you're looking at your notes, Jen. Healing and service, so I looked at my notes. Okay. No one can become Catholic. Okay, no. Yeah, that's, so you have initiation. And the three sacraments that are sacraments of Christian initiation are? Baptism. And Eucharist. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are so lame. <laughs> and I love you so much. <laughs> but I just love it like. <laughs> yeah, so baptism. I'm just going to put the letters. Confirmation. And Eucharist. Okay, and then you have um, sacraments of healing, which are confession, confession and anointing. anointing. So confession and anointing. And then tonight we're going to get into sacraments at the service of others. So sacraments of service. Our marriage and priesthood. Okay, which one do you want to do first? Service. No, which marriage or priesthood? That's not uh, one of the choices. Holy order. Holy again. <laughs> yeah, it's, thank you. It's holy order, it's not just priesthood. I forgot this. That might have been like the first major correction of the year or something. Back no. <laughs> I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you don't know that, that's from Billy Madison. It's an epic scene. I love it. Okay. Um, so we'll start with holy orders. Um, so here's the crazy thing. If you remember our treatment of the Old Testament to the New Testament, if you're going to be Catholic, what God does is he takes the Old Testament, and not just the Old Testament, but human things that are good, and he transforms and elevates them. Um, and so in the Old Testament, there is an order of priesthood. So in, um, <clears throat> in Exodus, right, what happens is you have the high priests. Right, who are the, and you have the, the descendants just of Aaron. And then you have the Levites, who are the priestly class. And then in Exodus 19.6, God tells Moses that the whole nation of Israel is a nation of priests. So it happens in the New Testament, right? And we've seen this before with different areas, right? Like, Remember when we talked about Jesus as the new Moses? Moses, lots of parallels, but one of them is that Moses has three close followers. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, right? Your three sons that are coming. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, those are his closest followers. So when Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai, he takes those three with him in Exodus 24. Um, <clears throat> but then there's 12 heads of the tribes, that are the next circle, right? So Moses has uh, three, 12, and then 
he has 70 elders. Numbers chapter 11. In the New Testament, guess what? Jesus has the three. Who are the three for Jesus? Peter, James, and John. Twelve are the apostles. And by the way, what Jesus is doing with twelve apostles is he's not just telling us, he's showing us that the church is the new Israel. St. Paul will say this in Romans chapter 2 and Galatians 6 and other places. And what that means, right, it's not that Catholics are better than others. The whole reason God chose Israel, and this is all over the New Testament, is he doesn't say, hey, you're Israel, you're better than other people. He doesn't say that. He says, I have chosen you to serve others. And what Jesus does is there's a new Israel. The new people of God, the center of Israel in the Old Testament, was those who were brought into the covenant, who had a Jewish ethnicity. But in the new covenant, there's a new Israel. There's a new 12. And what it means to be a member of the, of the new covenant is to be centered around Jesus. Right? In the old covenant, you had, bap or you had um, circumcision. In the New Testament, you have baptism. All these transformations. Okay, and then Jesus, we're told, has... 70 disciples. And so, in 1 Peter, but let me find the exact reference here. Um, 1 Peter 2.9. So, in 1 Peter 2.9, St. Peter quotes Exodus 19.6. And he says, you are a holy nation, a priestly people. Let me quote it exactly. Um. So 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. So the nation is a priesthood. Israel is not just a nation, it's a priestly nation. And you'll hear a lot of people today say all Christians are priests. It's true. If you were baptized, you are a priest. What a priest does is a priest is a bridge, and we're going to get to this tonight, a priest is a bridge between God and human beings. That's what a priest is. And so hopefully what I can be for you guys is I can be a priest who is, you say, you know what, I don't always understand everything about the Catholic Church or about Jesus, but I relate to Father Brian. And if he loves God and if he understands these things and if I feel like I connect to him, then maybe I can understand God too. But you are a priestly nation. The church is a priestly people. And so your job is, it, guess what, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, and among your friends, right? Maybe they, they're never going to talk to me. Right? Um, <clears throat> there's this, this girl I met named Corinne. Nicole knows. And Corinne is not a Catholic. 
But she got to talk to me and she was like, she's like, FB, like, I told people that I'm working with this priest and they all are weirded out by it. And she's like, but you're actually normal. And I was like, <laughs> amen. No. But it was so cool because it was a great moment for me as a priest where I was like, that's my job. My job is to help people feel like, wow, like, Father Brian isn't in totally insane. And if he loves God, maybe I could love God. Right? That's your job. You are all priests. And what priests do is they offer sacrifice. We talked in the Eucharist kind of sections of the class about how it's not just the priest that offers the Mass. Jesus offers it. The priest is at the head of the congregation. But all of us as a priestly people together, through him, with him, in him, we all offer worship to God, which is a priestly thing. Okay, so there's that. The Levites are the priestly tribe. So what happens with the Levites is they are assigned to minister in the temple once a year. Here's a cool thing with priesthood. Um, this, I, I don't know how to formulate the question. It's going to be a read my mind, so I'll just tell you. The Levites, when they're on priestly service, they only operate in the temple once a year, one month a year. And that month that they operate in the temple, guess what? They're celibate. When the Levites go home, they don't have to be, but when they offer priestly service in the temple, even in the Old Testament, they're required to be celibate. See where this is going. The priests of the New Covenant are going to be called not just once a month to be priests, to operate as priests, but their whole life. And so there's something fitting where priests of the New Covenant will be celibate their whole life. We'll get to the, a deeper explanation of that in just a minute. And then, so Levites kind of correspond to normal priests. And then the high priest, the only real high priest is Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews is explicit about this. Hebrews chapter 4, for instance, is big on this. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who entered into the, the Holy of Holies. And we should do this really quick. Um, but, in the Catholic Church, we believe the only, the closest thing to that are the bishops. Jesus is the only true priest, but the bishops operate that office of like the line of Aaron, of the high priest. Um, okay, let's pause really quick. I have tons more to do, of course. Questions about any of that? Yes? You might get to this, but since bishops like I, I'm, I was raised Catholic but I don't have a good understanding of when someone like might actually be considered to become a bishop or like how they become I mean I definitely yep. know like how the Pope is chosen but like everything that leads up to that for a priest yep. I'm just curious <clears throat> so how do you become a, a bishop um, it can change it has changed in, in the centuries um, it used to be popular acclamation of the church where the church said, this priest, or even someone who wasn't a priest yet. St. Ambrose, this would freak me out. St. Ambrose was ordained a deacon, a priest, and a bishop on the same day. And because the church of um, Milan was like, this is who we want for our bishop. And he became a great saint. He's the one who converted St. Augustine, by the way. Um, 
But <clears throat> basically what happens in today's world, and there's, it's just a um, practical kind of thing, but essentially every bishop in the church has an obligation to point out priests in their care who would make good bishops. So when Archbishop Aquila retires from Denver, he also will have, there's a list that goes to these people in this congregation, a committee. But what happens is he'll recommend like three people. And in Denver, Denver's a bigger church. If we were in like, um, let's not pick on anybody too much. If, if we were in the church of um, Grand Junction, Grand Junction was its own diocese, then it would be more likely that just an, a priest would be made that bishop. But for Denver, it's likely someone who's already been a bishop who's going to be moved to a bigger city. But anyway, what happens is there's, there's priests who are like, seem to have the skill to be able to do it, um, and then the Holy Father has the ultimate say. And so Pope Francis will name people. In general, I don't know 100%, but there's thousands of bishops across the world. I think Pope Francis is really involved in the, just the bigger cities. When New York needs a new bishop, he's gonna probably chime in. Probably when Denver needs a new bishop, he probably won't. There'll be, there'll be that committee will say, we think it should be this person and they'll just go with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's the mechanism. Yes, Carly. Are there more than 12? Um, because, so it's similar, I would say, to the, um, when you have, um, so in Israel, the promise that God gives is you inherit the whole land. Um, so Israel gets the land, and what it means is the land of Israel. But the church, because of the Messiah, and now that the covenant is opened, the, the covenant is now open to the whole world. And so 12 is still a symbolic number for Israel. And in Revelation uh, like 20, there's 21, in Ephesians 2, you have the church being built on the 12 foundation stones of the prophets and the 12 apostles. Um, <clears throat> but basically what happens is in the New Testament itself, so in Timothy and Titus, Paul is already saying that the um, bishops are successors to the apostles. So Paul goes to Philippi and he says, okay, now there has to be a bishop, episkopos is the Greek word, over this local church. And so basically it's, it's a practical thing, but it's because the church has been over this whole world. And I don't. So the hierarchy is pope, cardinal, bishops, priests? It's a quick joke about that. <clears throat> My the priest who like preached my first mass. When you ordain a priest, you ask a priest that you look up to to preach at your first mass for you. And the priest who did that for me, Father Glenn, uh, who is really a saintly man, but he, he always said the hierarchy of the church is pope, cardinal, bishop, lay people, dog shit, priest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was joking, but half. Um, so in the New Testament itself you have the papacy so you have the Pope that's clear and obvious in scripture the only people who don't see it are people who don't want to see it it's there bishops priests 
Hebrews. Now, what happens is the church, as a practical concern, what happens is as the church spreads to the whole world, when you're electing a pope, right, early on, there's 20 bishops. But at a certain point, you get to a point where there's a thousand. And if the guy, and it's like, how do we, if there's a thousand bishops, no one knows who to choose for the pope. And so what happened is the church inserted cardinals. Now that could change tomorrow. Right? Part of being a Catholic, what we understand is there's things that Jesus Christ instituted that are forever. There are other things that like, and my analogy for this is like the speed limit. Right? Like this like the basic law behind a speed limit is don't kill other people, don't recklessly endanger them. That's a divine law. Do not put other people's lives recklessly in danger. But is it divine law that the speed limit is 55? Of course not. Someone has to decide what's a reasonable degree of safety. So similarly to that, the, the church said, we just, it's impossible to pick a pope from a thousand bishops. And so some of the bishops are named cardinals, and that's a more kind of late medieval thing. And from that group, we'll choose the Pope. That could change tomorrow. Pope Francis could come out tomorrow and say, we're going to do this a different way. That's fine, as long as he doesn't contradict what Christ established. Okay, other questions? Okay, here we go. So marriage and priesthood... There's two, there's, this is, we'll frame it this way and then hopefully this works. We'll see. So what I want to use, I want to use Matthew 19 as a paradigm here. Matthew 19 is the story of the rich young man. And the early church, the reason we're going to use this for that is because the early church used this to understand how am I supposed to live as a Christian in the world? So the rich young man in Matthew 19 walks up to Jesus and he asks a question. Does anybody know the question? That's the answer. That's the question. <laughs> what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, so he comes up to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You ever wonder that question? What do I have to do? By the way, back to our faith and works question. Jesus doesn't say have faith. And if, and if you're coming from a sola fide tradition, it's very strange that Jesus doesn't say have faith. That's all you need. He doesn't say that. So he says, what do I have to do to, keep the, to um, inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, that's second. But yeah, I love when you guys mumble. So cute. <laughs> He says, keep the commandments, obey the commandments, right? So the first thing Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. Okay, and the rich young man says, which ones? Jesus lists off, uh, he doesn't list off the first three, but he starts with the fourth commandment. You shall honor your father and mother, 
You shall not kill, you shall not steal, right? Uh, you shall not commit adultery is the sixth. Um, he lists some of those, and the rich young man says, all of these I have kept since my youth. What still do I lack? And Jesus says, if you would be, not my disciple, sorry, am I the worst? Today on the podcast, Patrick and I were talking, and I started asking him questions, and he was like, he just looked at me like, I hate you so much. <laughs> like, like, don't have, but I was like, this is easy. I was like, and I was like, I, I gave him the softball stuff. I was like, Patrick, what day did Jesus die on? He was like, I got this one. <laughs> Friday. He did. Jesus says, so the guy says, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Do you want to follow Jesus? What do I have to do? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Uh, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. The early church understood that these are two ways of following Jesus. They're equally valid. Um, and before we get to priesthood, I think this is massively important. And the way of perfection, the early church called this, but I want you to notice something. Right? Remember my mom's magnet on the refrigerator? Are the commandments multiple choice? Right? That word, right, does not say if. Every one of us is bound by the commandments. The second one, though, Jesus says, if. And so with time, this became known in church history. Another word for this was this became known as the council. So notice a counsel is not the same thing as a commandment. Right? A commandment, right, and you and like those of you who have kids and those of you who will, you will know the difference between these two. Right? <clears throat> With your kids, you will very rarely give them counsel until they're 40, like me. <laughs> right? What you will give them is commandments. You won't say, hey honey, you know. I just want to counsel you. You're going to be a lot happier if you go to bed right now. Right? If you want to be happy tomorrow, I would counsel you this bedtime. You're not going to do that. You're going to commandments. Okay. This is critical. Hang with me. I know it's been a long day, but hang with me. This is before we get to priesthood. This is critical. In the same chapter in Matthew 19... What happens is um, you have, right here, Jesus, he says, if you would be perfect, go sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. So that's what we call poverty. Just before this, in Matthew 19, Jesus gives his teaching on chaste celibacy.
And then right afterwards, Jesus is going to call people, his disciples, to obedience. I know it's a lot, but just hang with me. So priests, not everyone gets this, by the way. I, if you're going to become Catholic, or if you already are, um, one of the things that's happening is the church right now is waking up. The Catholic Church has been asleep for 60 years. And right now it's waking up. And in my lifetime, I have seen things that would blow your freaking mind. My mother said to me when I, when I was in college and I had my conversion, I told my mom, I was like, Mom, I am signing up to change the world. And she, tell, she, she, she loves telling the story that she smiled and was like, that's cute. She didn't say that. She would never say that. But that's what she thought. The Catholic Church is waking up. We're going to go through a period of suffering, for sure. The church is about to shrink. It's going to suffer. The, the secular, like, militaristic, anti-God culture around us is going to persecute the church, I promise you. But then the church will change the world. But what Jesus calls some of us to is, and here's what St. Thomas Aquinas says, is that some of us, I hope some of you in this room, if you want to follow Jesus, most people, God's going to say, keep the commandments. That's radical in our world. If you keep the commandments, you will live a radical life. But to some people, Jesus is going to say, lose your Sorry, this is what I, what I hope to do someday. Um, some of us are called to lose everything. And so St. Thomas Aquinas, when he explains this, he says, he says, if you love someone, if you love someone, what you do is you surrender yourself. Right? Like when you guys, um, when you get married, those of you who are married, when you fall in love with someone, what you, when you're on the path, you give people gifts, right? And the natural thing when you love someone is you give them a gift. You say, hey, I bought you flowers. Um, or I bought you, you know, I don't know, I'm celibate. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever, you buy him something, right? And you love to give him gifts. The day you get married, the gift that you give the person you love is yourself. Right? And you say, I want to give you not just a nice night, a nice dinner, or a bouquet of flowers, or, I don't know, a new tool set, or whatever it is. What, when you get married, what you say is, I want to give you me. Here's me. Here's everything. Here's my life, and I give it to you. We're going to talk about that when we talk about sex, when you get your sex talk from dad which is me. Um, we'll talk about that. But, so St. Thomas Aquinas says that, that you want to give your life away. And he says, for people who God calls to give their whole life to him, this is how you do it. So Aquinas says there's three good things in your life. 
and they're good. They're all good things. The first thing is your material possessions. Right? That's a good thing. The stuff you own is not bad, it's good. But when you love someone, you want to give things to them. You want to surrender things. So the first thing a person gives away is their material possessions. And so they become poor for the sake of God. The greater good, the next greater good is the good of your body. And by the way, when we'll, we'll get to this, but Aquinas understands, right, that the good of your body, and he says the highest good of your body is sexuality. But if you really fall radically in love, you'll give that over to the one you love. And so someone who loves the Lord says, I'll even I'll surrender my body to you. And then the hardest of the three is obedience. Because what all of us want more than anything is our freedom. We want to do what we want to do. But if you, if you love God enough, some people make vows of obedience where they say, even if I want to go that way, Jesus, if you tell me to go that way, I'll do it. So what happens here, really quick, what I want you to see, this is Jesus. Jesus is poor. In the, in the sections on discipleship in the Gospels, he talks about how uh, birds of the air have nests, foxes of the den have holes in the earth, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' treasure is not a nice house, right? It's not worldly possessions. Jesus' treasure is God, is the Father. Jesus, despite what Dan Brown says, is celibate. Right? Not because sexuality is bad, but because it's good. And so he surrenders that out of love of God, and he's perfectly obedient. Perfectly obedient to the Father. St. John Paul II says, if you want to understand poverty, chastity, and obedience, he says they are perfect on the cross. Right on the cross, Jesus has finally surrendered everything he has, even his own clothing. He has chased the church fathers, right? Adam and Eve in the garden are naked without shame. The early Christians believe that Jesus fulfills that and returns us to Eden on the cross, where he is naked without shame. Jesus wasn't crucified with a loincloth, by the way. We do that because it would be weird for you to bring your kids to church and give them an ex exposition in male anatomy. Jesus was crucified naked. And he's naked on the cross for his bride. And he's perfectly obedient. So poverty, chastity, and obedience, you want to lose your life? This is how you do it. Um, and God has to call you to that. It isn't something that you should just choose on your own. It's something that God calls certain people to. And he calls them to lose everything. Love that. By the way, my, so my friend, um, <clears throat> one of my friends, he always says, he says, he says, Father Brian, you have to take prom make promises of poverty, chastity, and obedience so that you can do what I am forced to do in marriage. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> And those of you who are not laughing are not married. 
Um, when you get married, I promise you, your kids will make you poor. I promise you that. That will happen. You will be chased because your sexuality will be only for your spouse. Right? It will be only for your spouse. And those sexual desires that all of us have, God will focus those not onto a body, but onto a person. Which is super beautiful. And you will be more obedient when you get married than you have ever been in your entire life. <laughs> I promise you that. All the stuff that was so fun that you did when you were single and had your own life, you can kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> that will happen. And by the way, you'll find joy and freedom and fulfillment by doing that. Okay. So, so what do the women do? <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to answer that question. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. So now let's get into the details a little bit. So... Here's the thing, to be a Christian, you have to lose your life. You have to lose your life. You cannot be a Christian and just do the things you want to do. You can't do it. And right, what the world tells us, and this is what these two sacraments are about, the two sacraments of marriage and holy orders are about service. And what the world tells us is that, hey, if you want to be happy, have more stuff, do the things you want to do, have pleasure and power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we all want it, right? Every I, whenever I preach about this, people always look at me like, and maybe that's you, Father Brian. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking. About. That's what the world says to us, right? What Jesus Christ says to you, if you want to find happiness, lose your life. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus says, the one who seeks his own life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. So those three, the councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience, are not a sacrament. But that's the way of perfection. And so religious nuns, religious brothers, people who are consecrated, that's their life. Is they, they live the way of the councils of perfection. People who are called to marriage, they lose their life, both in the commandments, but through marriage. The point is, somehow you got to lose your life. Somehow you have to lose it. And here's the, this is the church's understanding of this. People in the Catholic Church don't oftentimes speak this way, but I'm just going to be bold with you guys. Sometimes I have said a couple feelings here, and I don't mean to, but I think this is the truth. Marriage is something that is built into the human race. I do not like language around discerning if I'm called to marriage. You are made for marriage. No one has to call you to marriage. 
right? When, when God creates Adam, he says it is not good for the man to be alone. There is a reason 98% of all songs on the radio are romantic songs. There is a reason why everyone desires some type of romantic love. God doesn't call people to marriage. He makes them for marriage because it's the best thing on earth. And I really believe that. Marriage is the best thing in a natural sense. Marriage is the best thing that exists. And it will save you, by the way. If you, if you live a Christian marriage, and we'll get to what that means, hopefully, if you live a Christian marriage, it will save your soul. It will not just be like, hey, you're pretty hot. Try not to look at anyone right now. <laughs> um, let's, you know, let's, you want to make some babies? Like, that's great. <laughs> you know, everybody has those desires. That's not the kind of love that will save you. But you know what will save you? Is when marriage teaches you to love other people more than you love yourself. That kind of love will save you. Uh, okay, so God calls certain people to, to orders, to holy orders. So let's, let's wrap that up and we'll jump to marriage. Um, so, <clears throat> what the New Testament teaches us is that on the cross of Jesus Christ, from his, I can't draw, but... We'll do my, I'll do my best here. I don't know that I've ever done this. Um, from Jesus' bleeding side come forth water and blood, which is the church. Right? Remember the typology? Adam, on a Saturday, God puts him to sleep, takes a rib from his side, and creates his bride Eve. Jesus, on, the, on after sundown on Friday, right, going into the Sabbath, Jesus sleeps the sleep of death on the cross, and from his pierced heart in his side come forth uh, water and blood, which the early church says is Eucharist and baptism, in other words, the church. And what I want to hammer with this is that means that everyone who is a Christian the moment that your real life began was right there. If you want to understand priesthood, that's it. Do I understand marriage? That's it. And if you don't see marriage there, you probably don't have a Christian understanding of marriage. That's Christian marriage. I preach on this at weddings sometimes, and I can just feel the uncomfortableness of, like, the, like, non-Catholics in the crowd. They're like, did he just call marriage a crucifixion? And I'm like, you bet I did. <laughs> <laughs> and all, like, all the married people are like, amen. <laughs> okay, so priesthood, let's hit the common things. Je the moment Jesus institutes the priesthood is at the Last Supper. Right? At the Last Supper, Jesus institutes a new sacrifice. He asks the first priest of the church, the apostles, to continue this on in perpetuity. By the way, 
Catholic as well as Protestant scripture scholars, none of, nobody really denies that. It's very clear at the Last Supper, Jesus is calling for a new sacrifice to be offered in perpetuity. And the, the 11 apostles, Judas leaving, they are the new priests that offer the new sacrifice. There's some really cool, if we had more time, there's some really cool sections of the New Testament where Jesus hints at these things. But Jesus does that. Okay, so priests, right, they, they offer the sacrifice. Um, so let's hit the controversial things. Male-only priests. Why can only men be priests? The way the question behind this question is usually, and I think it's really important to name this, when people say, why can't women be priests, the assumption behind the question is that priesthood is about power. That's the assumption behind the question. And I, I challenge you to look at this. When people bring this up, and they're like, why can't women be priests? Almost always what people are really saying is why can't women have more power here's the problem if priests are living the way that Jesus commands them to live priesthood is the antithesis of power priesthood isn't about power priesthood is about crucifixion now, are there priests who live for power? Yes, there are. And I think it's a very, very serious sin. And I really mean that. So what the church believes, and what we're going to see with a couple things, the church believes that the basic official answer of the church is that she has no power to ordain women as priests. There are certain things that Jesus did that we don't have the authority to change. That's the simple answer. There's stuff behind that. So you might have heard this. A lot of you, I'm sure, have. Who is the holiest person that ever lived outside of Jesus? Mary. Mary. Is Mary an ordained priest? There's a, there's a beautiful poem. I forget who wrote this one. There's a beautiful poem I've read that said, talks about how Mary is the only person who ever lived who was not a priest. This is going to make me cry. Everything does. Big surprise. Um, <laughs> Mary's the only person who has ever lived who is not a priest and could stand at the cross and say, this is my body. Right? Jesus' body does not come from Joseph. It only comes from Mary. And so Mary can stand at Mount Calvary and say, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, but anyway, Mary, so like the common assumption is that um, men can only be priests because Jesus instituted this in a patriarchal society and it's about power. We don't have women to have power. The most powerful woman in the universe is Mary. The most powerful person in the universe outside of God is Mary. But her, po her power is in her humility and her service. And Jesus turns power upside down. This is what he does. The moment of Jesus' power is the moment of his crucifixion. And so like one of our staff members, she's not here, uh, Morgan, who is like, a, she's like a daughter to me. She's in, I get what she's saying. There's a certain point to what she's saying. But she always says, she's like, FP, I would never be a nun. 
She's like, I would be a priest if I was a dude, though. She's like, look at you. You get to have, like, cool friends and, like, see people, and you get to have a glass of wine after RCIA or bourbon or whatever. She's like, nuns don't get to do that. And this is how the world looks at it. And I'm always like, Morgan, have I been with you so long and you do not know me? Which is a scripture reference. But anyway, what I want to say to Morgan is you're looking at it the wrong way. One of my best friends is a, is a sister in a convent. She is poor, chaste, and obedient, and she does it better than me. She absolutely does it better than me. And she's not sitting there going, damn, I wish I could just do the stuff I want to do. I just said stuff. <laughs> but she doesn't say that. My friend Shannon, who's a sister of life and is poor, who lives in the Bronx and serves women who are pregnant out of wedlock and takes care of them, right? The mystery of Jesus' cross is lived inside of her. And anyone who thinks that priesthood is about power, priests included and bishops included, has completely misunderstood everything priesthood is. Okay. So women, right, it's not about, it's not about women can't do the same things. Obviously they can. And they can do some things better than men. Obviously they can. Mary Rogers, if she were here, pray for her, she had double knee surgery every year, and Nicole knows this answer. Every year when people say, why can't women be priests? Her answer is that the sacristy is where I get ready before Mass, where priests get ready. And her answer is that sacristies are way too small. And so women can't be priests because there's four colors, which is not enough. And she also says that there would be lipstick all over the altar. That's Mary's answer. It's not the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, so it's not because women can't do things. It's not... Um, it's not because men are better than women. It's because Jesus was a man. And his humanity matters. So when a priest offers the sacrifice of the Mass, what we believe is that when I say Mass, it's not Brian Larkin saying Mass. It's Jesus Christ saying Mass through the priest. And Jesus is the groom who gives his body and his blood to his bride, the church. And so the church doesn't say men and women are, are ones better than the other. What we say is they're complementary. And that Jesus' masculinity actually mattered. But the official teaching, again, is just that, is that Jesus, and this is a good point to finish priesthood on, Jesus... Um, if you say, well, Jesus lived, and this is a common argument people make, they'll say, well, Jesus lived in a patriarchal society. If he lived in 2021, he would have ordained women. What's the problem with that argument? This is that part where you answer, right? You're bending God to affect Good. Right? Yeah, like, if God bends to the cultural norms of a time, then it's not God. And also, Jesus didn't. Jesus breaks cultural norms left and right. It's one of the things that got him crucified. Right? And like so like in John four, when he's sitting by the with the woman at the well in John chapter four, the apostles are amazed that he's sitting by himself with a woman. Jesus has no problem with that. In first century Judaism, that's a big deal. You do not do that. Jesus doesn't bend to cultural norms. 
And so Catholics believe that we don't just have, we don't say, you know what? We're in 2021 now. Like, we just know better than Jesus did in the first century. If you say that, you're not going to be a Christian very long. Because you know better than God. Does that make sense? This means yes. This means no. Or just stare at me. Okay, any last questions before we hit marriage? One question along yes. the lines that you said earlier about marriage, but for today's reason, but what about people that, the FB says we're all made for marriage, dot, dot, dot. What about people that are called to be single? So the Catholic Church does not teach that people are called to be single. And, when I, and so there are people who are single. Does that mean that God, they miss their purpose in life? What do you think? No. I don't think they did. So like one thing, like, like I get people in boards in my office all the time, and they're like, Father Brian, where are the good guys? The guys don't come and ask me that because there's gorgeous women everywhere who are faithful Catholics in boards. I, so I don't get that from the guys. Uh, maybe one or two. But anyway, one of the things I think has happened is that in our culture, fewer people have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, and there's just a consequence for that. And some people are going to suffer from that. Does that mean their life is less meaningful? Nope, sure doesn't. Does that mean they can't give their life in service to God in the church? Sure doesn't. What I would encourage people to, though, is somehow you've got to find a way to give your life away. You're not a victim to, like, I didn't find the right guy, I didn't find the right girl. You're not a victim to that. Give your life away. Go serve at a homeless shelter. Give your money to the poor. Join an apostolate. Somehow give your life away. That's what I would say. Tonight's kind of a strong class, by the way. Any other questions? Um, so, like, a little while ago, mm -hmm. you were talking about, like, the secular, um, militaristic world. Yep. What do you mean by, like, militaristic? Do you mean, like, are, like, you want to fight each other, or are you talking about, like, the actual military itself? Yeah, no, when I say militaristic, is the video working because it's frozen on my... It's working. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, what I mean by that, I don't mean literally the military. I mean that people have a militaristic mindset. So it's not just you and I disagree. It's, I will destroy you. And if you don't, if you don't know where that's at in our culture, um, talk to me after class <laughs> um, and wake up because it's everywhere. And like very soon, like I, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm kind of skeptical of people who are overly dramatic. Um, but like Archbishop Chappie used to say, and Cardinal George in Chicago, he used to say that um, he would die in his bed, but the next bishop after him, his successor, would likely die in prison, and the person after him would die a martyr. And that's kind of dramatic. Is that true? I don't know. But, but I wouldn't be too surprised. Yeah. No, Eucharistic ministers can be females. Um, altar servers at Lourdes, we only have men and boys predominantly. In fact, all of them are boys. But we, it doesn't have to be that way, though. Girls can be altar servers. The only reason we do that is because serving at the altar during Mass is, has traditionally been a way to help young men start thinking about becoming priests. That's the only reason we do it at Lourdes. 
The women can be altar servers. There's no problem with that. And I do think, I think the church, one thing I will say, there's a danger out there, of, and this is about power. This is called of clericalism. What clericalism means is Father Brian has all the answers, and we just do whatever he says, and he's better than everybody. And I love that. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's a sin. Clericalism is a serious sin. And so with women in the church, like, I actually think we have to have a, a really healthy understanding of this, that the church is not priests. The church is not priests. The church is not bishops. The church is not the hierarchy. The church is us, guys. This is not my church of Our Lady of Lords. First of all, it's Jesus Christ's church. But it's not my church. It's our church. And I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm trying my best. I can tell you about Galatians 3. But, like, maybe you know way better than I do how to help people with young kids to have a better experience at Mass. I would be willing to bet you do. Um, and so the, the church is meant to operate as a communion. Right? There is hierarchy. There is the buck at board stops with me. But I'm not supposed to make all the decisions. We're supposed to do this together. We're supposed to love each other and be a communion. So I can talk about that forever. Other questions? On the women thing, I was watching Chosen, and I was thinking, like, yep. why isn't Mary Magdalene, or why wasn't Mary Magdalene a, uh, a priest? Oh, yeah. Um, is that, like, the same thing as far as... So not in terms of the apostles. The reason why not is because the, the apostles will become the first priests. So the word in Greek for apostle, is op, it comes from the word apostelene, which means to send. So in a certain sense, actually, Mary Magdalene is an apostle, but when we say she's not an apostle, what we're really getting at is the apostles, right, are the first bishops. And the bishops are priests. So that's why, but by the way, a really cool thing in the New Testament, in, in Judaism, there are things, here's another example of where Jesus breaks norms. In Judaism, women are not allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. And in the Gospels, there's a heavy theme of witnesses being called to testify to Jesus' divinity. And the first witness to the resurrection is Mary Magdalene. And the New Testament is very conscious of that, that, that God chose her. And she, Mary Magdalene, is actually a witness to the apostles. There's another cultural norm that, that God breaks in the New Testament. Anybody else? Any other questions? Um, do you see why priests can't get married? So, priests could, but what the church teaches is that it's fitting. It's fitting for priests to be celibate. So what happens is the first apostles were married. And I don't want to get too deep in this because we won't get marriage done tonight. But um, the first apostles, many of them at least, are married. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. It's hard to heal a mother-in-law if, if he's not married. Peter is married. A number of the apostles are married. In 1 Corinthians 7, St. Paul talks about how, actually 6, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, St. Paul says, 
that he and Barnabas, he says, don't we have a right to be married and to have a wife like the other apostles? But he uses a new term. Uh, this could be rabbit hole. But he uses the term sister wife. Don't laugh. Sounds super creepy. But what this means, and there's tons of research that's been done on this, a sister wife is not, I married my sister. That's, the Old Testament forbids that. That is clearly forbidden in Jewish law. That's not what it is. What a sister wife means is it means the earliest tradition of the church is you could be married and then you could become a priest, but you and your wife then lived as brother and sister, which means you gave up your sexual life. Why? Because poverty, chastity, and obedience is conformed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you offer the, the offering of Jesus Christ at the altar, he gave his whole life away by giving away his um, material possessions, his body, and his freedom. And so priests are called to be conformed to that in a unique way. Does that kind of make sense? Emma, you can push back on me. Okay, no takers. How are you guys doing? We've got like 15, 17 minutes of class left. Do you need a couple minute break? I feel like I've been going hard. That's a yes. Two minute break, and I mean two minutes. Two minutes. Right, that's the old confessional when the church was here. You know that? Oh, the igloo. Yeah, no. I think so. I don't know. Yeah, that's not what it is.
Okay, we ready to start back up? Thank you, Alicia. Okay, so marriage. I can't do the, the how's it going, the Princess Bride? Marriage. Marriage is what brings us here today. Okay. Um, so, Christian marriage, um, hugely important topic. Um, so, we did this before. Do you remember how, you remember the creation story, right? You've, you have the seven days line up, right? So, day one, you get the light and the darkness. Day four, you get the sun and the moon. Day two, you have the sky and the sea. Day five, you have birds and fish that go with the sky and the sea. Day three, dry land appears. And day six, which lines up with day three, you have land, animals, and mankind. And so you have right, all these things that go together. And then the culminating piece of all of it, right, is marriage. Um, and so the, so the high point of creation is communion. It said we want to love someone not in a shallow, surface-level way. We want to love someone with everything we've got. Right? That's written on our hearts. Um, so what we believe as Catholics, though, is all things, this is my sermon not this past weekend, but the previous weekend, as Catholics, and if you're a Christian, all things have been redefined by the cross of Jesus Christ. All things. Um, and so in Ephesians chapter 5, which is the verse that everybody hates, um, where it says, Wives, be subordinate to your husbands. You guys know that one? Yeah. Most couples at their wedding day, they avoid that one. Some of them actually are like, oh no, we believe this. And some people, I, someone told me recently they chose that just to watch their relatives squirm a little bit. <laughs> um, which I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, didn't I just choose a reading for that reason? By the way, again, like, real quick commentary on that. When, when we hear wives be subordinate, I think what most of us think of is a really bad, abusive husband. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, that's not what Ephesians 5 is talking about. In the context of Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 is talking about a husband who looks like Jesus Christ, who loses his life for his bride. And that chapter, that section about marriage begins, and that section begins and it says, uh, be mutually, 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 be mutually submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, in other words, the Christian paradigm, right, the world tells us you want to be happy? Have people bow down to you. Have more things. Be more powerful. Uh, have more pleasure. What Christianity says, what Jesus says to us, is you want to be happy? Lose your life. Lose your life. Um, that's the context of Ephesians 5. 
And so people hate when they say wives be obedient. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, we're told that obedience is what saved the world. And so a lot of people come to that reading in Ephesians 5 and they say obedience is a four-letter word, it's a bad word. Stop telling people to be obedient. That's not the mind of a Christian. The Christian mind, and in Romans 5, what St. Paul does is he says, what brought the world to sin was one man's act of disobedience. Who is that one man? Adam. Adam is disobedient, and so sin enters the world. Right? And remember, like Jesus is recreating the world in his passion, death, and resurrection. He's making all things new. Uh, in the garden, there's a tree. Adam and Eve are disobedient, and they bring sin and death into the world. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right, there is a tree looming in the background. It's called the cross. And the New Testament knows that it is the tree of life. Right? It's the tree that brings life to the world. And Jesus goes to that tree in obedience. And he reverses the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Right? Mary, by the way, the early church sees as the new Eve. Right? An angel, Satan, speaks to Eve, to, um, yeah, to Eve. And she listens and is disobedient. Mary listens to another angel, Gabriel, and is obedient to God. And Mary's obedience... Right, untangles the disobedience of Eve. Um, okay, so anyway, so Christian marriage is this. And here's the I the world thinks this. The world thinks that marriage is just about we like each other. Now, I'm not telling you to marry someone you don't like. If you come to my office and you're like, yeah, we don't really like each other, but we're Christians. I'm going to be like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> right, like... This is not a good idea. Um, but Christian marriage is greater. Christian marriage is a sacrament, which means it will save your soul. It is a means of grace by which God will, will literally bring you salvation. Um, and the reason is, right, all seven sacraments bring us to the cross. So Jesus redefined marriage on the cross. He lost his life for his bride he surrendered himself into death. Every one of you that is going to be married or is married, that is what you are called to do. You are called to lose your life in obedience, in poverty and chastity, obedience to your spouse and to your children. Um, so, one image Pope Benedict has here that I think will be helpful. It's Pope Benedict, there's four words in Greek for love. What do, anybody know any of them? Okay, there's agape. Okay, eros. Eros. Philia. Love. They all mean love. Philia, and we're missing, the last one is the hardest. So it's okay. The last one is storge. Okay, so here's how they go. So, eros, um, in our world, eros has been degraded. Eros is a really good thing. It's not a bad thing, it's a really good thing. 
we associate it with the word erotic, and that's where it comes from, and that's fine. But eros just means whenever you have someone that you can't wait to see, and there's just a joy to be around them, that's eros. But it sounds weird to say that today. Right? You can't just be like to your friend, like, I have such eros for you. (laughs) You're like, it's okay, I'm in Father Brian's RCIA. It's okay. Um, But that's eros. Eros, it can be sexual desire. That's good. Sexual desire is good. Right? Like, when I I have couples sometimes come to me and they're like, we're going to talk about all the sexuality stuff next class. Um, But when you, uh, when a couple comes to me and they're like, Father Brian, what's the big deal? We, we share a bed, but it's no big deal. We're not, nothing's going to happen. I'm like, how can you sleep in the same bed with the woman you're attracted to and nothing happens? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm celibate, so I don't, I don't, maybe I don't understand these things. But, but Eros is a good thing. We're supposed to be attracted to each other. Okay. Philia is friendship love. Or family love, the easiest way to think of this, right? Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philia is a word for family love or friendship love, and Adelphos is a word for brother, the city of brotherly love. Or that's love and brotherly is Delphos. So that's family, that's kind of love you have for your little brother or for your parents, whatever. Or a good friend. Storge is a love of the familiar. So when I go home to the street that I grew up on, I just love that street. Right? I'm just, it's familiar. It's home. That's kind of different from the love I have for my little brother. Right? It's not the same kind of love. It's not the same kind of love that you guys have for your fiance. It's a different kind of love. And agape is divine love. Agape is the love where I won't lose my life for you. So, we talked, when we talked about purgatory, we talked about Dante, right? Remember, it's an allegory. Catholics don't believe that purgatory is literally a mountain. But this is a great image of this. Um, So what happens on the mountain of purgatory, right, something like that, um, what happens is Dante, right, he has to climb from the bottom. And his great love, the woman that he had tremendous eros for. I mean, if you haven't studied Dante, um, this is considered like a romance that's like on par with Romeo and Juliet. It is one of the great romances of all of history. Dante wrote the most beautiful poetry and literature about her, and he was infatuated with her his whole life. Her name is? (laughs) Good, Good guess. Greg Rogers, no. Nope. It's Beatrice. I meant B. <laughs> yeah. So Beatrice is there. And here's, and here's what happens, is that what Pope Benedict, when he's commenting on this, and Balthazar does as well, it's so powerful, super beautiful. When Dante, there's the seven levels of Mount Purgatory, and what happens is when Dante reaches the top, and he encounters Beatrice, she chews him out. No jokes, right? I know all the guys are like, yep, just like my wife, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's not, the, the, what happens is really beautiful. What Beatrice does, Beatrice just rips into Dante because Dante had a selfish love. 
right? Now, all of us, I'm certainly guilty of this. I love being a priest. I love you guys. But there's a lot of me in it sometimes. And there's a lot of selfishness in my love. And what Beatrice does is when he gets to the top, she rebukes him that he never really loved her. What he really loved was himself. And it's a scathing rebuke. But the whole point is what, what Pope Benedict says is that the climbing that Dante does is a movement from eros. Oops, that's the Greek. Um, to agape. Um, if you get this, and this is going to set us up for next week, we're going to start talking about sexual ethics and just ethics in general and morality. We'll start with morality in general. If you get this, you will understand all the Catholic Church's teachings about sex. Because what God wants to do is he wants our sexuality to be as close as it can be to the love of another person. All things have been redefined by the cross, which means sex has been redefined by the cross. And so our sexual desires are good, but they have to be crucified. They have to be crucified in a way where my sexual desire is no longer just about myself, but it's a giving of myself to another person. Um, I'm sure there's more I'll think of next week, so we'll probably have to cover a couple things on marriage to start next week. Any questions? Cap off tonight's class. There's more about priesthood, but tonight we're good. I'll, we'll email her. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. One thing I should say, this is an important one. I should do this. Um, we'll do this really quick, I promise. The Catholic teaching on divorce and remarriage um, so with divorce, that's how you spell it. Um, what, the, what the church teaches about divorce is not that divorce is wrong. What the Catholic Church teaches about divorce is that it's impossible. Because that's what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. And so if you come from a Protestant tradition... What they believe is they believe divorce is a sin. But what does God do with sin? He forgives it, right? God forgives sin. And so divorce, it may be a sin, but what does God do? He forgives sin. The reason it's different for Catholics is that what Jesus teaches, and maybe we'll start and do this a little bit more in depth next class, Jesus does not teach that divorce is a sin. He teaches that it's impossible. And so the Catholic thing, now, does that mean if someone comes to my office, and, if I, and I've had this before, if I have women in my office who are like, my husband's abusive, I'm scared for my life, I'm not like, well, honey, divorce is impossible. Of course I don't say that. What I say is, get out of there today and I will help you. <clears throat> That's what we do. But the problem is not divorce, the problem is divorce in the 
Because in the church's eyes, when you said forever at the altar of God, that means forever. Or till death do us part at least. I know it's a heavy note to end class on, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, what an annulment says is that the original marriage, for some reason, something was invalid. Doesn't mean the people were bad. It doesn't mean there were bad intentions. It doesn't mean the children born of that marriage are illicit. That's not a Catholic term or a theological term. Illicit children is a, is a term that arises from inheritance rights. That's where it comes from. So it was, it was marriages in like the Middle Ages when people said, we as a family, we had three kids, and then my husband went and had an affair, and I don't want the child of the affair to receive inheritance rights. It had nothing to do with the church whatsoever. It was a secular term. We don't believe there are illicit children. They don't exist. There's no such thing. Um, but th this is what it's about. Um, it's about. It's about Jesus' teaching that when you said, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life, and you made an oath before God, that that is real. Really heavy. I feel bad that we ended on that note. I'm sorry. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, St. Patrick, pray for us. Sunday we'll have the third rite of or, um, scrutiny, um, and then we will have more happening. Um, we'll have more news for you guys coming down. We've got Palm Sunday, if you're being confirmed. It'll happen at the noon mass on Palm Sunday um, if you're a candidate. If you have to be baptized, right, um, that's going to happen at the Easter Vigil. If you are, I got that wrong. If you are coming, becoming Catholic. So if you are coming from another tradition, if you were baptized a Protestant, coming to church, that's going to happen at the Easter Vigil. If you were baptized a Catholic and just need to be confirmed, that will happen Palm Sunday. Um, the biggest thing is to reply to my email for the information so we can get your certificates ready for your sacraments. Pretty much 90% of you have given me everything, but there's 10% of you who are just not replying. So if you want to just tell me right now that, and that's easier for you, I'm fine with that. Um, and I will send out an email about a rehearsal if we are doing that. So just stay tuned. I'm going to talk to Father Brian. But if you have questions about logistics, just come see me. If you need to see me as well before Holy Week or during Holy Week, Holy Week is actually not a busy week for me. So don't hesitate. If you need to talk to me, come talk to me. And there's okay? RCIA the week before Holy Week, right? Or yes. Yeah, um, so Wednesday and then Holy Thursday. So we'll see you the Wednesday before Holy Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Please. Okay.